This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. He reigns, let the earth be glad. Speak to us this morning as we look to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you for Jonathan for mentioning uh, the anniversary, which will happen tomorrow. What he didn't tell you was that he was there uh, on the other side of the world that day, uh, which was a great uh, encouragement to myself and to Wendy. Uh, it would be helpful if you took out your bulletins and looked at the gospel reading. It would be even more helpful if you took the Bibles from the pews. It would be even more helpful if you brought your Bible to church and looked at that, but that's another sermon. Verse 19, the doors being locked for fear of the Jews. From one perspective, they were right to be afraid, of course. Jesus had not just merely died. Jesus had been executed his own people, the Jewish leaders of the day, had turned him over to the Romans. The Romans frequently used crucifixion, but they didn't crucify just anyone. In fact, the elite in Roman society detested the very idea of crucifixion. The great orator Cicero said that the very word cross should not be uttered by a Roman, ironically enough, using the word cross while he made the sentence. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment reserved for two types of people, slaves and insurrectionists. In other words, for people considered either to be less than human, slaves, Aristotle after all had said that slaves are simply living tools, and for those guilty of treason and rebellion against the government. The Gospels make it crystal clear. Jesus was executed on a trumped-up political charge. He was executed instead of Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a terrorist. He was strung up between two other terrorists. Note that the word in many of our English Bibles used to describe the two men crucified with Jesus, the word thieves, is a sanitized translation. There is a perfectly good word for a thief in Greek, kleptes, from which we get the word kleptomaniac. The Gospels don't use this word to describe those two. The men nailed to the crosses beside Jesus were lace tie, brigands, terrorists, guilty of insurrection. The Romans took the claim that Jesus thought of himself as a king quite literally. If he was some kind of pretender to the throne, whether that was Herod's throne or Caesar's throne, that was treason. 
He was dangerous. He needed to be eliminated. Hence, the cross. The form of execution meant as a deterrent for those kinds of people. That's why the disciples are afraid. That's why the doors are locked. A deterrent warns others not to follow in the steps of the one on the cross. The disciples had been warned. They were rightly afraid. They could be next. They had been following Jesus. They had eaten with him. They had been seen with him. They spoke with the same strange Galilean accent. The Romans were known to be efficient. They had executed the leader, but they may not be finished. They may want to do some mop-up work and deal with the riffraff that Jesus had gathered around him. After all, when Spartacus had led a slave rebellion, the Romans didn't crucify only Spartacus, but all of his followers. They lined the the road to Rome with their bodies on crosses. They could do it again. They had cried out Hosanna. They had called him son of David, a kingly title. The disciples were wanted men and women. Uh, Yes, there were women disciples, but that's another sermon. Fear pervaded the upper room on the first Easter evening. Perhaps they should have known better than to be afraid. Jesus had predicted some kind of resurrection was going to take place. He spoke strangely about three days. But what could he really have meant by that? Something about the end of time, probably. Something about the last judgment when God would raise up the just and the unjust to face the final judgment. Perhaps they should have taken the women disciples more seriously. They had gone to the tomb. Luke records that a group of them saw Jesus. He names some of them. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others. Whether Mary the mother of James is also Mary the mother of Jesus, we're not sure. Every third woman in Palestine was named Mary in those days. But Luke says their message, that their message that they had seen, the risen Jesus, seemed to them an idle tale. And the disciples did not believe them. John says that Mary Magdalene in particular was commissioned, sent by Jesus to proclaim the resurrection. That's in the verse right before the gospel reading of today. I have seen the Lord, she said. But yet in verse 19, they are afraid. Have you ever been afraid? I think I've been afraid quite a number of times. But the thing that comes back to me that stands out the most was a day that we were in the town of Gambela where we lived in Ethiopia. It had been a tense few weeks. In Gambela, there's frequently ethnic violence. It bubbles to the surface from time to time. The two major ethnic groups can often end up fighting each other. And then when that happens, they stay on opposite sides of the town but there are skirmishes and shots are fired and for various nights we had heard shots fired in the town. One morning we were doing our grocery shopping in the center of the town where things seemed to be a little safer. People would mingle in the center at the market. 
So we were buying our tomatoes and onions and bananas and suddenly there was a loud bang and everyone in the market scattered. And then everyone in the market began to laugh because it wasn't a gun as we had all feared. It was a backfiring motorcycle but it brought to the surface the reality that we were all living with a certain amount of underlying fear of what could happen. And we have lots of reasons to be afraid today. To start with, we've all been living through a pandemic, the like of which the world hasn't seen for a century. Almost a million people have died of COVID-19 in this country alone. Worldwide, 6.2 million deaths have been attributed to the virus, and that number is probably vastly underreported. Climate change is another thing that's making people afraid. The U.S. birth rate is at a record low. One of the reasons, and there are multiple explanations for this historically low birth rate, but one of the reasons is that many young people simply don't see the point of bringing children into the world, into a world that appears increasingly on the verge of ecological catastrophe. The war in Ukraine is making many of us very nervous. Sadly, wars in Africa and Asia don't seem to bother us very much in the Western world, but a war in Europe that's hitting a bit close to home. And maybe you shouldn't even get me started on the political divisions in the country. That reality has many of us nervous. It has many people on the verge of anger much of the time. Mention the wrong word or heaven forbid, the name of the wrong political leader and seemingly gentle people suddenly explode. We know something of the fear that the disciples were feeling on Easter Sunday evening. But Jesus comes. Jesus comes and stands among them, even though the doors are locked. He doesn't wait until they have their act together. Jesus doesn't say, when you folks have calmed down, I'll come and we'll have a chat comes to them in the midst of their fears and their doubts and their anxiety. And he says something familiar to this group of Jews. Peace, he says. Shalom. It's a typical way of opening a Jewish conversation, a typical Jewish greeting. It's typical except for the fact that in John's gospel, the word only appears five times. Twice in Jesus' farewell discourse in the upper room, the Last Supper, and three times in today's reading, verse 19, verse 21, and verse 26. The disciples on this day need this word. They need the affirmation of Jesus. Peace. Now, Jesus does not say that all of their fears are fake news. He knows that their fears are based in reality. He doesn't even tell them that everything will be all right. He knows that everything will not go swimmingly for those who follow him. Many of the disciples will be imprisoned, put on trial, 
forced into some form of exile, like John, who wrote the second reading that we read today from the book of Revelation. Some, well, almost all of the 12, will be put to death for believing in Jesus. All of them will have a price to pay for following this man. And Jesus does not promise that we will never experience disease or war or division or ecological disaster. Jesus comes to us in the midst of all of that. And Jesus comes and says, peace. In the midst of the devastation of the world, Jesus promises wholeness. In the middle of human history, Jesus says, there will be an end. Twice in the book of Revelation, we are told that in the end, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The author of John's Apocalypse knew the Old Testament. He knew that Isaiah chapter 25 says this. God will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. God will swallow up death forever. One day death will be no more. One day suffering will cease. One day all tears will be wiped away. One day peace will pervade God's creation. And Jesus' appearance and his greeting of peace has an effect on those gathered in the upper room. The effect is joy. Again, very sorry about this, but it's hard to see the word joy in our English translations. Uh, The translation you have in the bulletin is better than some because it says rejoice, verb based on the noun joy. Uh, Some translations say glad, which makes it even more difficult. The root of the word glad is kara, joy. You need to remember this word. It's our daughter's name, Kara. So there'll be a quiz later. Joy. The disciples' fear is countered with Jesus' appearance and his word of peace results in joy. But Jesus goes on. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If the story of the first Easter night begins with the disciples' fear with Jesus bringing peace, the story doesn't stop there. Jesus brings more than reassurance. He brings a task. The resurrection of Jesus does not mean the story is over. The resurrection of Jesus begins, be, means that a new chapter in God's relationship with the world has begun. To understand Jesus' word about sending, we need to go back to near the beginning of John's gospel. In what is perhaps the most famous Bible verse at all, we learn that Jesus came to the world with a mission from the Father. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus was sent. In fact, if you look through John's gospel, you'll see this message over and over again. Jesus is the sent one. To put it kind of crudely, Jesus was the Trinity's missionary to a hostile culture. 
In the first chapter of his gospel, John says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus did not come to a world that was just waiting for him. He was not some kind of Hollywood star greeted by a red carpet and adoring fans. He was born in poverty in a remote part of the empire in an obscure village, even by pretty low Galilean standards. After preaching his first sermon in his home synagogue, the people of his village tried to throw him off a cliff. He said he had no place to lay his head. The Gospels are filled with stories of people opposing things he said and did. The religious leaders plotted against him for various reasons. His own disciples didn't understand him much of the time, and even his own family thought he was crazy. He did not come to do a simple task. But now he says to the disciples in the upper room, pay attention, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Well, thanks a lot. Imagine the disciples' thoughts. Let me get this straight, Jesus. Your mission to the world involved you being misunderstood, rejected, homeless, finally arrested, tried, tortured, and killed, so now you're sending us out in the same way. Thanks a bunch. As Teresa of Avila once said to God, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you don't have very many. So Jesus sending the church into the world is no easy task. But it is an amazing and glorious task. The mission is to bring the message of forgiveness of sins to a world desperately in need of mercy. If you forgive the sins of any, Jesus says, they are forgiven. The mission is to offer pardon to anyone willing to receive it. The mission is to embody the gracious love of God to a world in rebellion. That rebellion means that not all will receive this gift. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Some will not want forgiveness, grace, mercy, reconciliation. How can these fearful disciples hope to do this? How can we hope to do this? The answer comes in the form of a rather enigmatic action that Jesus performs. Like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus sometimes acted out his message. He overturned tables in the temple and cursed a fig tree. Well, here's another example. Verse 22. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Sending needs receiving. The sending of the disciples into the, into the world can only happen after the disciples have received the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel in the first chapter of Acts say the same thing in a slightly different way. Luke 24, 49. I am sending you, I'm sending upon you what the Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What the Father promised was 
the Holy Spirit, was God's very presence. Without the Holy Spirit, the disciples remain powerless because the task they have been given cannot be done in their own strength. The task we have been given cannot be done in our own strength. We need the Spirit of Jesus. We need his breath to blow on us. We need his power to enable us. And so Jesus counters the disciples' fear with his peace, and he enables the disciples by sending the breath of his Spirit. You would think that that might be enough, but actually, as the late night sales pitches used to say, but wait, there's more. The first day of the week, the first day of the week, he breathed on them. Hidden in plain sight in this text is the most amazing part of the story. The story happens, John tells us, on the first day. Bible readers know something about the first day of the week. Those of you who were at the Easter vigil very early on last Sunday morning heard the story about the first first day of the week. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God says, let there be light. And there was light. The first day of the week is the beginning of creation. John's gospel knows this chapter of Genesis. In fact, John begins his own book with the same words found in the Greek version of Genesis, in the beginning. And now on the day of Jesus appearing to his disciples, on the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb, John says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not merely the story of the resuscitation of one man. It's not like the story of Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the son of the widow from the town of Nain, all people that Jesus raised from death. Jesus' risenness is a whole new thing. The resurrection of Jesus means new creation. Easter means that the world is being remade. The resurrection, this resurrection is unlike anything else. God has reversed death. The Old Testament promised a new heaven and a new earth, and this is the beginning of that new heaven and new earth. Christians' belief in the resurrection is not some obscure, strange point of doctrine that we need to tick off on a sheet to prove that we are real Christians. The resurrection means that the universe has changed. Whether we believe it or not, nothing will ever be the same because Jesus is alive. Jesus breathing on the disciples simply underlines this reality. It should remind us of two things in the scriptures. First, when God made Adam, back to the creation again, God breathed into him and he became a living person. Just as God's breath in Adam was the breath of creation, even so Jesus' breath is the breath of new creation. Second, we should be reminded of a passage in Ezekiel. 
because, of course, you're all reading Ezekiel on a regular basis. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet has a vision. He sees a valley, a vast valley, and it's full of corpses. And they're not just corpses. They're dried up bones. This is not like the princess bride. These bones are not just mostly dead. They're really dead. Now, I thought wearing my miter this morning, I might have said something else from Princess Bride, but I'll avoid that. (laughs) He sees these bones, and a heavenly voice asks him, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives the right answer. If you're ever asked by a heavenly being a question, the answer is, you know. You know, replies Ezekiel. And what happens? The breath of God, the wind of God, the ruach of God blows over the dry bones and the bones come together and they're covered in skin and the breath of God goes into them and they stand up and they live. New creation. Now in the upper room, the disciples see the story of Adam and the story of Ezekiel's valley of dry bones with their own eyes. They feel it breathing on their skin. Jesus is alive. He is standing before them. It's the same Jesus who had been crucified. Verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. He still has those scars. In the upper room, he still has those scars. In heaven, he still has those scars. But death has been defeated. The tomb has been vanquished. He is living and breathing, and his breathing is not just for himself. His breathing is for the life of the disciples and for the life of the world. And that power, the power of that new creation breath, that new creation Holy Spirit, that power is here today, among us, within us, empowering us, and sending us into a world desperate for life. In a world that's filled with fear, we have a message of peace which can bring people joy. In a world in which people are hiding from all forms of reality, we are sent in a world that is suffering from the reality of death, we have a message of forgiveness of sins and of the new creation. Let us pray. Peace be with you, Jesus said. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and send us out into your world with the message of forgiveness and peace and mercy. For we pray in the merciful name of Jesus. Amen.